This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Over the past six episodes, we've profiled three different skyjackers, exploring their backstories, their crimes, and the moments when they've crossed paths. In this episode, we will meet the final player in this brazen helicopter prison escape, the man at the controls of the helicopter, the man actually being hijacked. He was probably one of the best of the best. I think he had a little over 30,000 hours of flying time and had flown all kinds of helicopters. He'd flown some airplanes. You, you name it, he did it. He was just really talented. They had waited and plotted And now, as prisoners Martin McNally and Garrett Trapnell stood around a gold jacket in the yard of Marion Penitentiary with a hijacked helicopter hovering overhead, their impossible prison escape was looking more and more possible by the second. Over a thousand feet above them, Barbara Oswald was holding a pistol to the back of the helicopter pilot's head, calmly directing him to land the chopper in the prison yard. At the same time, multiple guards were beginning to raise alarm and their rifles from the surrounding prison towers. Let's freeze here with the helicopter still in the sky. We've gotten to know Mac, Trap, and Barbara, but the pilot, someone who could actually fly, also plays a pivotal role in this story. While most people flying a helicopter with a loaded gun to their heads would do exactly as they're told, this pilot was not most people. He'd been in high-pressure situations before. He was a natural-born, all-American hero and an eternal optimist. His name was Alan Barklage, and he knew a lot in this moment. He knew the guards were taking aim at his helicopter. He knew they wouldn't distinguish between him and the perpetrators of the escape. And he knew if he landed the chopper in the prison yard below him and took on his intended passengers, he wasn't going to make it out alive. This is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. I'm your host, Danny Wisentowski. In our seventh episode, we meet Alan Barklage, the helicopter pilot held at gunpoint during McIntrap's daring prison escape from Marion Penitentiary. Alan was just a happy-go-lucky guy, and he just never thought too much into anything. In his life, I would say Alan almost never worked for a living. Whatever he did, he did because he enjoyed it and had fun doing it. That's Gene Hoffmeyer, Alan Barklage's lifelong best friend. Gene's family had just moved to the town of Cottleville, Missouri, and he was the new kid in school. So I was kind of lucky to catch him when he was at Cottleville. 
because a couple of years after we got into high school, he moved. And uh, I lost touch with him after the freshman year. And then we ran back into each other uh, when we were seniors. The year was 1966, and America was at war in Vietnam. So when Gene and Alan graduated from high school, they were expecting draft notices. But rather than get drafted, Barclage advised Gene to be proactive and sign up for the Army himself. Ran into Alan, and Alan said, oh man, don't let them draft you. They got this really cool program. You can fly a helicopter. So I went back home and talked to my dad, and he was an old ex-Navy guy, and I said, what do you think? He goes, anything's better than a foxhole. <laughs> so, so he was about a month ahead of me, going to basic training, going to flight school, and uh, going to Vietnam. Barclage fell in love with flying helicopters. Even while he was getting shot at in a war zone like Vietnam, he regularly demonstrated a talent for thwarting death. He did get shot down three times that year. They were coming into a hilltop and it was fogged in. Some kind of an emergency, they were supposed to lift somebody out. Well, they got down there and the aircraft uh, crashed and rolled down the side of the hill. Well, Alan had been knocked out in the process. He wakes up and he's laying in a stretcher and they got a sandbag on his head you know, and he's going, what's this all about? He goes, well, you know, you had a head injury, so, you know, you could have a broken neck or something. But you have to lay still and lay right there. Next morning, he woke up and he goes, man, I'm hungry. He took the sandbag off and went down to the chow hall. <laughs> but that was Alan. He really loved flying. And it, it, for a lot of people, it's almost addictive. He was a lucky guy, but he was, you know, he was a guy that took chances. You keep taking chances and sooner or later, something's going to come back to bite you in the butt. After two tours of duty in Vietnam, Barclage returned to the States and began flying choppers for radio stations and other commercial outfits. Soon, he became the chief pilot for Foster Helicopters, the go-to helicopter charter company in the St. Louis metro area. Alan was the chief pilot. I was the number two guy, and uh, we would be there at the barge anywhere from 60 to 80 hours a week. His wife worked at the barge selling tickets. He had uh, two children, two daughters, Shelly and Sherry. As the summer season was well underway on May 24th of 1978, it was business as usual around Foster headquarters. That particular day, we were really booked up. Like I said, we were flying traffic. We were flying morning traffic. We had two aircraft going up for evening traffic. The post-dispatch called up and wanted to go out and take some pictures. And my schedule was to uh, finish up and then uh, take this lady on a flight down to uh, survey uh, the land down by Cape Girardeau. She had passed herself off as a real estate person. Uh, it turned out to be Barbara Oswald. Well, what happened was I went out, but uh, they ran long uh, doing pictures for their newspaper. So I ended up calling him and I said, okay, I'm back in route when I'm out in Eureka. And Alan said, no problem, she's here. I've talked to her, we've got everything set up. He said, I will take her. So I said, okay, you know, you know no problem. So when I got back, Alan had already left.
you know, this was nothing real out of the ordinary. You know, we've had people call up and say, hey, my child is lost. You know, they're not doing enough to find them. I want to rent a helicopter for an hour to fly over these woods. Okay, that's, you know, aerial survey. That's kind of what we, you know, yeah, that's in our purview. So it wouldn't have raised any suspicion whatsoever. Gene remembers hearing Barklage communicating with the office over the radio as he took off with Barbara Oswald, saying he was headed down to Cape Girardeau, a town a little over 100 miles south of St. Louis on the Mississippi River. We got a call from the uh, Illinois State Police and the FBI that there had been an incident They said that he had been hijacked. We jumped in another Jack Ranger, flew it on down. Of course, we got a hold of them that told them we were coming, so they they wouldn't shoot us down, thinking we were, uh, you know, second wave. That afternoon, Alan Barklage had guided the helicopter south towards Cape Girardeau. Once he was out of radio range, Barbara Oswald pulled a pistol and pointed it at his head. Barbara Oswald told him what the real plan was for a prison break. She had a gun and she had been a uh, air traffic controller. So she knew something about aircraft communications. And she turned off his transponder so that he couldn't talk to anybody and then ordered him to fly over the prison, get a look at it, see where he was going to, told him where he was going to land. At that point, Alan was pretty high. He was about, I think he said, 3,000 feet. They didn't want to arouse the suspicion of the guards in uh, in the prison. Now hovering above the prison, Barklage was between a rock and a hard place. Below him, the armed guards were beginning to take notice, and Barbara Oswald was becoming more and more agitated. Either he was likely to be shot by his hijacker, or he was likely to be shot by the guards after landing the chopper in the prison yard. He thought of his wife. He thought of his two daughters. And Alan Barklage made a decision. Well, he told her, he said, you know, these doors are not intuitive to people that haven't been around aircraft. These prisoners come up to the aircraft, there's a good chance they won't be able to get in because they won't know how to unlatch the door. She goes, well, I'll unlatch them before we come down. He goes, well, you can't do that because the wind and everything, the wind's gonna push against the door. You know, you're gonna have to kind of open the door beforehand. And you're gonna have to manually hold that door out. You know, she didn't know if that was true or not, but she thought she better try it. So when she did, she took the gun out of her right hand, put it into her left hand, and reached over and tried to open the door and push on it. 
when she did that, Alan noticed that she had it in her hand, but she didn't have her finger over the trigger. Alan, being a taller guy with, with long arms, and having flown rides all these years, you were used to you reaching back and helping people with their seatbelts. He would do that. I could not. I couldn't reach him, but he could reach. He knew he could reach the seatbelt. He knew his length of reach. So he reached back and grabbed her gun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Hovering above Marion Penitentiary, Alan Barklage knew he needed to do something. So, he took his hands off the controls. So he reached back and grabbed her gun. And they started wrestling. While they're doing that, the aircraft starts falling out of the sky. The thing's falling out of the sky. He's reaching back there, fighting with this woman to, to get the gun. He finally gets it away from her and turns around and regains control of the aircraft, gets it back to level. She's just calmly said, well, that's no big deal. I've got another gun. And she reached down into her briefcase and started pulling out another gun. Well, at that point, Alan said, you know, the decision was made. Uh, he turned around and just unloaded the gun. without ever aiming or anything else. Of course, she's only 30 inches away. And even at that, uh, a couple of rounds missed her altogether. But one did hit her, and it was a fatal injury. But then he didn't know that, you know. He, he knew she was laying back there, but he didn't know whether she was alive, whether she was just, you know, knocked out, she was gonna come back too. He uh, regained control of the aircraft and put it into a very steep descent and came flying into, well, not into the prison, he flew right at the front door and jumped out and was flailing, flailing his arms around going, whoa, you know, I've been hijacked and, you know, I got the woman here, she's hurt. She's hurt. She's hurt. 
from the ground, Martin McNally couldn't see the helicopter descend, but he could hear it. And I hear the chopper, the rotor, in place. It's not moving. And then I hear the chopper is shutting down in front of the prison. I leaned over the trap and I said, we got a problem. The chopper shut down the rotors, it's off, the engine's off. And I said, we got to get back into the compound. By that time there, when I did turn around, Kenny Johnson was already on the roof getting ready to go into the yard. Well, I took off running to the building, and I said, I can't get up here, Kenny. I need a hand. So Kenny came down, gave me a hand, and pulled me up to a ledge there. We were both able to get up on the roof, main prison, above the corridor. We're getting ready to go down into the main compound. As we're getting ready, I see an officer. I told Kenny, I says, we're made, we're hit. So we sat down on the benches. About 15 or 20 officers came rushing out of the prison. And uh, they put us in cuffs and took us immediately to segregation. They shut down the yard right away. Everybody, yard recall, return to yourselves. Trav Nill had sat down. He became catatonic. He was just out of it. He lost it. They handcuffed him, too. Later that evening, the uh, FBI came to him, and uh, he came back to the unit, and he said, Barbara was killed. She's dead. And I said, oh, my god. This is terrible. And I didn't find out until after she was dead that uh, she had been up for 40 hours before this thing happened. Couldn't sleep. And she was taking pills to stay awake. Barbara Oswald's death changed everyone connected to it, beginning with Alan Barklage, who, in his own self-defense, fired the shot that killed her. Yeah, he was traumatized. He was just beside himself that he'd gotten through this and he'd actually had to shoot somebody and, you know, tell him the story. And he never shot anybody personally. You know, if you're flying a gunship, you may have killed several people, but you do it at such a great distance. So I flew him back that night. He was definitely not himself. He was visibly shaken. You know, he was actually you know, trembling a little bit. His, his nerves were pretty much shot. Well, you know, somebody just threatened to kill you, and he figured if they were, had been successful and had gotten his prisoners out, he was going to die. On their flight back to St. Louis, Gene remembers Barklage trying to come to grips with what had just happened. He couldn't believe that anybody would do anything like that, that anybody would be that kind of person, you know. What her thinking was in trying to get these guys, you know, that's, that's the maximum security prison. Uh, from the federal system. I mean, it's the worst of the worst down there. He felt really badly that, you know, that things went the way they did, and then she had basically left him no choice. I remember thanking him. I said, you know, if you'd have waited for another 20 minutes, I would have been back, 
I'd have taken this flight. And I said, I can guarantee you, I could not have done what you did. After Alan kind of calmed down and, and, you know, kind of within a couple of days or so, his wife really took issue with the fact that Alan was now a celebrity, you know, TV stations are calling him for interviews and all this kind of stuff. I was really surprised. I really thought that I had it under control and I didn't think that I was going to have to shoot. Uh, when I had the weapon pointed at her, I thought that I was going to be able to to salvage the whole situation without anybody getting hurt. She was telling him, you know, don't do it. Don't do these things because you're calling more attention to me and the kids. And we don't know what her family is or, you know, what ties she has to these guys. Somebody could show up at the door and kill us all. You know, this is, this is really dangerous what you're doing. And Alan didn't see that. He kind of saw this as an opening to... Uh, doing the traffic and stuff like that. You know, it's all happened. I might as well use it to uh, enhance my career and see what we can do with this. So she divorced him over that, pretty much, and moved on. After surviving the hijacking, losing his first wife, and becoming a local celebrity, Barkledge had gone through a whirlwind of change and come out of it a new man. From there, his career took off. He was to do Channel 5 which was the TV station, Chopper 5, that he flew. That's Tory Lyons, a veteran radio producer and traffic and weather reporter who flew with Barklage for many years after he survived the hijacking. I went out to meet him, and he just looked so normal. And we were going to discuss putting the radio people in the chopper with him and the logistics of how that was going to work. He asked me if I had a few extra minutes to spend with him, and I said yes, and he took me upstairs in his office and brought out this old battered blue scrapbook and started showing me pictures of this bloodied helicopter, and he rehashes the story for me because I wasn't completely familiar with it, and to hear it from him was like hearing it live. I walked away that day a little bit stunned. It was probably out of all the experiences in his life, probably the most impactful on him. Tori also vividly remembers the experience of flying with Barclage, his fearlessness, and his innate ability to maintain control of the aircraft. It seemed almost effortless. He was a bird on the wind. I was immediately told that the first time I got in a helicopter with him, his objective was to scare the crap out of me. Well, I did go up with Alan. And I was in the back. He said, how much time do we have between reports? And I said, oh, I got about 10 minutes. And he said, I'll take you for a ride. We were over the Blanchett Bridge, and he dove down. And he got within inches of the water and full speed ahead. I mean, literally, you could see the helicopter shadow in the water. Now on the front lines of breaking news in the St. Louis area, Barclage's reputation and celebrity continued to grow. You could be over the biggest traffic jam in the entire county, and if there was a major news story, Alan was gone. He would be so quick, or a chase. If the cops were chasing somebody, we were chasing the cops. And considering everyone on the radio could listen as this wild event unfolded live, 
Barklage created a reputation for himself as a local hero. After he plunged into the Mississippi River, New Channel 5's chopper pilot Alan Barklage hovered his helicopter above the Mississippi and helped rescue the victim. It became huge within my company. We never had reporter pilots before. And all of a sudden, we've got this legend in St. Louis that does both. He definitely was the first of his kind. He, he originated the traffic reporter pilot role. He did all kinds of stuff around St. Louis. Somebody would open a new uh, grocery store or appliance store. You know, Alan would go out and do a celebrity deal. He felt like the more he did, the more valuable he would be as far as keeping doing what he was doing. As a matter of fact, the day he died, he was supposed to fly out to a car dealership. He was going to fly out there and land, and they were going to give away hot dogs and soda pop, meet Alan Barklage, and all this kind of stuff. Now, we went out there and had my grandkids with me and uh, my wife. We got out there, and, you know, well, he's supposed to be here, you know, in 15 minutes or so. And 15 minutes went by. Pretty soon it's a half an hour. And I said, this is, this is not good. As a hobby, Barklage had purchased one of the first build-it-yourself helicopters, a tiny, one-seat, highly maneuverable craft known as the Mini 500. It was perfect for the high-speed stunts he performed at promotional events at local businesses. That is, until September 19th, 1998. I actually thought it was an arcade game when I first saw it. You know those that you see at the grocery store? Because it was no bigger than that. It really wasn't. I just looked at it and I, I said, Alan, you're going to die in that. And he said, there's a lot of times I could have died, and I didn't. Accident investigation found that uh, while he was taking off, the uh, engine failed, and the aircraft just fell, probably from about, we're thinking about 60 feet, fell straight down into the field. They got him out of the aircraft. They had no heartbeat or anything like that. They put him on the gurney and started taking him back to the ambulance, and his heart restarted. And that's kind of what everybody, you know, gave everybody the hope that well, if his heart restarted, maybe he's not in that bad of shape. It was hard on all of us. It, it was tough. We stayed at the hospital all day that day and half the night. And I got to see him. I almost wish I hadn't now. I wish I could have just remembered talking to him on that Friday. and not seeing him with all those tubes, and that wasn't Alan. Alan was invincible. That was not Alan. I don't know who that was laying there. Alan was gone. 
Mrs. Oswald's plan was to force the helicopter to pick up the convicts and then land near this car, stocked with guns found last night near Perryville, Missouri. In the months following the helicopter escape attempt from Marion, after Barbara Oswald was shot and killed by Alan Barklage, McNally and Trapnell's lives were spent in isolation. Here, they prepared for their upcoming trial for the attempted prison escape. If convicted for this new charge, which they almost certainly would be, their life sentences would likely be doubled, destroying any chance of them getting out of prison on parole. We were locked up on May the 24th, three of us, me, Trapnell, Kenny Johnson, and we know we're gonna be indicted. And we were indicted in uh, Illinois for that escape attempt. We were indicted and uh, we had to uh, prepare for uh, a trial. Garrett Trapnell hadn't pulled the trigger, but his letters and meetings with Oswald left no doubt whose decisions led to the death of a mother of five children. As for Mac, who also faced prison for the rest of his natural life, he saw it slightly differently. It was Trapnell's reckless exploitation of Barbara that had doomed them all. His common sense was not the best common sense. He would do things that were stupid, and he needed to be corrected on that. And uh, when he did things that were stupid, I corrected him. After this thing happened and Barbara was killed, I jumped all over him verbally, and I said, why didn't you follow my instructions on telling her that she can't come in here visit you on the same day that she's gonna take the chopper. Why didn't you do that? His response was this. I mean, if this would have succeeded, you wouldn't be mad about this. But while enraged, Mac had known about Trapnell's recklessness, especially when it came to manipulating women. He'd seen it firsthand through his own family after he and Trapnell had first met years earlier. While he was at Leavenworth and I was at Marion, there was supposed to be a, a movie made about the Fox is Crazy too. He wrote my younger sister. She was in college at the time. He told her that uh, he could use some young girls, five or six, seven young girls, for this movie. All expenses paid. My sister uh, approached some of her uh, classmates and uh, Trapnell, the fucking dog that he was, he asked for risque photographs. These girls uh, dressed up in uh, bathing suits and bras and panties and whatever, and sent them to him for his approval. Well, as it was, that was a scam. There was no movie. There was no um, expenses paid trip to California and all this other stuff. It was a scam. When I discovered it was a scam, I told my sister I should kill him for pulling that stunt. But uh, I didn't kill him, I didn't stab him or anything like that. I was pissed off about what, what he pulled though. When he did get to Marion, I told him that, that was a really scumbag move that you pulled, dude. There's no excuse for that. Yet despite this violation of his own sister and the disastrous escape attempt that would keep them in prison forever, 
Mac's loyalty to Trap stayed strong. Trapnell had needed to seduce women throughout his crime-riddled life. But in Mac, he had forged a partnership on will alone, the will to escape. And for Mac, there was a certain honor in that. I never lost respect for Trapnell. I always held him with high respect, high intelligence. But the Fox wasn't done casting his spell. In the lead up to this new trial, Trapnell was well aware that the rest of his life was on the line. And the question now became, who could he manipulate next? Next time on American Skyjacker, Garrett Trapnell's manipulative talents claim yet another victim who will attempt to break Trap and Matt out of prison using a familiar technique. He convinced her that she should commandeer a plane. She let a flight attendant know that she had a bomb strapped to her. The flight attendant could see what she described as dynamite with wire and a bell kind of thing to uh, initiate the uh, explosion. That's going to petrify anybody on board. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morcom. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening.